You're listening to an Ancient Future podcast produced by St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. This is episode 9 in our serialization of John Boddicher's book, Ten Steps on Freedom Road. In this episode, John considers the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. He frames that in terms of freedom for life together. John Bottacher. Chapter 9. Freedom for Life Together. The sixth commandment in Exodus and Deuteronomy reads, You shall not murder. The most basic problem in understanding and responding to any message is discerning the meaning of the words. In the case of an ancient text, such as the Bible, the problem is magnified. We have already seen an example of this problem in a matter as basic as the meaning of the biblical name for the God of the Israelites. But now we have come to the sixth commandment, and we are confronted with a question about its meaning which hinges on a single word. It is a problem Christians have never fully resolved for themselves, and so we must recognize the problem and accept its continuing existence. Murder, says the New Revised Standard Version and other recent and widely used translations. The King James Bible says, kill. It seems on the surface that not murdering is fairly simple, a commandment that most of us apparently keep. But if we are commanded not to kill, does that mean we must be vegans or pacifists? or opposed to the death penalty and medical assistance in dying, there are Christians who have made a strong case for one or another of these interpretations, usually not all at once. What about the Hebrew word? Well, I'm no Hebrew scholar, but I'm aware that there is some debate among scholars about the translation. Now, having recognized the scope of the problem, let's take the simpler path. Let's assume that the modern translations are correct. After all, Torah clearly offers instructions about the slaughter of animals and the causes for which persons might be put to death by the community, as well as recording times when God directed Israelites to engage in war. So, at least in those times and places and for those people, we can assume the narrow meaning while anticipating that it may get more complicated as we go along. What is involved in the commandment not to murder? And how does it lead us on the path toward freedom? We might not think it necessary to command people not to kill. All it takes to restrain us is the recognition that the other person is a human being like us, given the gift of life in the same way we have been given it. So why does it happen? Why does one of us murder another? Well, anger is one reason. Another person has done something which hurts us to our core. And we strike out at them in rage, a rage which might have been building up for a long time and which might be fueled in its energy and lack of restraint by alcohol, drugs, or emotional illness. Is the commandment telling us that we should never be angry? No. Anger is a natural human emotion, given to us as a source of energy to help us make our world a better place. 
combined with our ability to think, to calculate the effect of our actions, anger is a wonderful resource in overcoming injustice. When we suppress our anger, bottle it up inside until it overpowers our ability to think clearly, we are on the way toward murder. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, from the Bible, is good advice. In other words, deal with the situation while the energy of anger and your ability to think clearly can best work together. Confront the situation while you, rather than your anger, are in charge. The commandment frees us to receive anger as a gift, not a curse. Closely related to anger as a reason for murder is revenge. Someone has taken the life, either directly or indirectly, of another person for whose well-being we consider ourselves responsible, and we act in response. There is a saying that revenge is a dish best served cold. When someone is murdered as an act of revenge, the killer's ability to think, plan, and calculate is not set aside as when anger drives us. Rather, our reasoning power becomes crucial to the act. The murderer who kills for revenge considers her or his act justified. The murder is committed to even the score, or to uphold the honor of the dead person and his or her family or community. In this case, the murderer is actually proud of the act and eager to create credit for it. The problem with murder for revenge is that the story goes on. One murder leads to another in a chain that can only be broken when the responsibility for administering justice is yielded to a higher power, or when everyone is dead. In what we call civilization, only the representative of the state acting on the outcome of a careful legal process can rightfully take a person's life. Of course, that process can be corrupted or simply mistaken, which is why folks like me are glad to live in a nation where the death penalty has been suspended. Ultimately, giving to a human institution the power deliberately to kill a human being can only be justified if we regard that institution as having the authority of God, the giver of life. The commandment against murder does not mean that murderers should not face justice. It means that the one who sets us free is also the one who will finally hold us accountable for how we live out our freedom, including how we respond to injustice. That freedom includes our ability to break free from the bondage of violence and injustice by refusing the path of revenge. Yet another reason why people commit murder is fear. We imagine that someone is trying to hurt or kill us or someone we love, and so we kill them first. Those who commit such murder will seek to justify the murder as self-defense, and so not really murder. You know, I had to do it before he could do it to me. The problem with this excuse is obvious. When we use it, we claim to be God, knowing the heart, mind, and intentions of another, having therefore the right to take away their life for a wrong they have not yet committed. Fear, like anger, is a natural human emotion, not wrong in itself. Fear mobilizes our energy to perceive and respond to danger. It helps us be alert. So why is it 
that in the Bible, one of the messages most frequently coming to humans from God or an angel is, be not afraid. Well, I suppose meeting an angel or hearing the voice of God would make me afraid, but the problem of fear alone is that it can freeze us. The energy it generates can turn against us, taking away our power to confront the danger we perceive. So, the point of the biblical be not afraid must be, I'm not here to overawe you. I'm here to move you. Fear needs a companion to produce movement. We may call that companion courage. Fear, accompanied by courage, means you can face the fear and whatever is causing it. You can be moved to do what needs to be done in that scary situation, no matter how grim the prospect. So, now imagine we are in a situation where our lives and the lives of our companions seem to be threatened by some nasty-looking people carrying weapons. Fear alone can freeze us. But if we have courage, we will act. But how will we act? Flight? Fight? This is where the commandment and the freedom it offers make a difference. The Israelites lived in fear in Egypt. After all, the king tried to kill all their baby boys. With Moses' leadership, they found the courage to move, to attempt to leave Egypt for the desert. But the courage they found was of a special kind, and it came to them as a gift. It was courage blended with the faith that the God of their ancestors was journeying with them. This kind of courage we may call hope. Being able to face the scary stuff in life is good, but hope is even better. The Israelites could not see where they were going. It was trusting God's promise that changed their courage into hope. And that hope gave them a sense of possibility, not limited to fight or flight. They no longer had to accept the definition of reality given to them in their life as slaves. Moved by hope, they saw the possibility of freedom and began the journey toward the promised land. Now, let's look again at our imagined life-threatening situation. We are rightly afraid. We have courage and are prepared to do whatever we can to meet the danger. Our choice of actions is limited to our sense of the situation. If we assume that those others are heartless killers and that our only options are fight or flight, we may well accept murder as what we must do. But... What if our courage is transformed into hope by our awareness of God's presence in our situation? What if hope, trust in God's promises, leads us to see the others as also God's beloved creatures? The commandment sets us free from bondage to fear, opening us to move in a way not determined by the way the situation initially appears. Well, let's not imagine that the situation will magically turn out just fine with no one hurt. That's not the way the biblical story runs, and that's not what God promises. But hope opens us up to the freedom of new possibilities, the freedom of knowing the situation does not determine the story, and the story is not over. Such is the dangerous and hopeful freedom toward which the commandment steers us. The last five commandments are all tersely negative in form. This one is no murder, and that appears very simple. 
but the heart of murder can be expressed in more complicated ways. I can murder someone by provoking someone else to do it, by manipulating their capacity for anger or fear, or their need to be seen as an agent of justice. I can become responsible for murder by providing aid, such as giving or selling a weapon, to someone I know or should reasonably suspect to have murderous intentions. I can murder someone by consenting to their murder, by keeping silent when I should be protesting against murderous acts. Or I can murder someone by merely withholding from them the necessities of life. We might even say that murder is committed when one person treats another in a way that is soul-destroying, such as encouraging a person to begin a behavior that is potentially addictive. And by the way, thanks to St. Thomas Aquinas for helping me see these things. Further, all these forms of murder can be political as well as personal. Living in a democracy, we all share responsibility for what happens when our nation sends troops into war, or permits the irresponsible sale of weapons, or fails to protect persecuted minorities, or becomes indifferent to the needs of the poor and the homeless or treats addicts as criminals rather than as people who need help. Once again, we see that true freedom is a gift that can only be received when it is shared. Freedom belongs to life in community, not just to individuals. We do not spell out these complications to the commandment to make it appear more difficult, but to show how following this path, despite the wholly negative form, of these last five commandments leads to action. Freedom involves moving forward, not just avoiding certain acts. No one has seen this more clearly than Martin Luther. In his small catechism, he says this about the meaning of the sixth commandment. We are to fear and love God so that we do not hurt our neighbor in any way, but help him in all his physical needs. Living in a community where we help one another lifts the shadows of fear and rage, opening the way toward a climate of freedom in which we can help each other overcome the anger that blinds us, the self-idolatry of revenge, and the paralysis and panic fear produces when we think we are alone. We are never alone when we trust the promises of the one who calls us to walk together the path toward freedom. You've been listening to a podcast in our serialization of John Boddicher's book, Ten Steps on Freedom Road, Why the Commandments Are Good News. I'd invite you to consult the show notes where you'll find a link to the web post for this episode. And on that post, we will be including each of the episodes as they're released so that it's easy for you to go back and pick up one that you may have missed. 10 Steps on Freedom Road, Why the Commandments are Good News, is easily available through many booksellers, both online and the bricks-and-mortar sort, and a particularly affordable edition of the book in Kindle format is available through Amazon. Music for this series was provided by Steve Bell. We are grateful to Signpost for their permission to use this music. We're also grateful to John for taking the time to so carefully record these, to Kevin Grummet, Larry Campbell, and Bram Ryan, who did a lot of the background work on this audio, 
and to you for taking the time to listen, to think, to dig deeper with us in these podcasts. I'm your host, Jamie Howison. Thanks for listening.